It's the Sleep Well, Stay Well podcast. Here we go with Malia Jacobson as your host. Hello and welcome to Sleep Well, Stay Well. I'm your host, sleep and health journalist, Malia Jacobson. Today I am reposting an episode from last spring, and that's an interview with Dr. Wendy Sue Swanson. She's a pediatrician, author, mom, and chief medical officer at Spoonful One. She's devoted her career to prevention efforts and works to bridge the gap between parents and doctors using digital media. I met Dr. Swanson back when she was the first physician blogger for a U.S. pediatric hospital, Seattle Mama Doc. Dr. Swanson helped lead the way for novel use of social and digital media in healthcare. She speaks in the U.S. and internationally on health, healthcare, and communication with patients through digital media. I think this interview is especially relevant now and uh, would be a great resource for new listeners who haven't had a chance to hear it. Dr. Swanson has a lot of great insight on helping our kids build resilience. I haven't had much parenting content of late, and I think it's especially relevant now that we are dealing with a pretty uncertain spring for a lot of kids and students in many school districts, some ramping back on to online learning and some still at home with no end in sight. Dr. Swanson is a great resource and I really enjoyed our discussion. Here she is. Dr. Swanson, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm good, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, how are things in, in your part of the country? Yeah, well, <laughs> today it's sunny. So of anything, I'll tell you, I, I used to be a kind of avid um, wilderness backpacker and camper. And I'll tell you, when you're in the middle of the wilderness and life is pretty simple, weather means everything. And, I'll, and I found <laughs> with the quarantine that weather means everything. So oh, yeah, as you know, I, I've moved, I mean, we all know that in, in the Puget Sound after 16 years for, for me there. But now that I live in Madison, Wisconsin, um, the spring and the quarantine that started, you know, early in March for me, at least and my family, um, it's, it's getting better and better in some ways because it's warmer. <laughs> so, so I'm, I'm a little bit happier today than usual because um, the blue sky. So thanks for asking. Yes, um, same here. We are having fantastic weather this week. Although I will say I did get an email from my daughter's teacher today that no one is turning in their work this week. <laughs> yeah, right. So I think that the weather has an impact on homeschooling as well. And yeah. it's a lot harder for parents to get their kids to buckle down. Right. But if they're getting more time outside, I think that that's a, a fair trade-off. Of course, yeah. So I'm really curious to get your take on a lot of things here. Um, as we move kind of fingers crossed out of the peak stage of this COVID-19 crisis, um, and we're seeing and kind of incorporating the changes that have happened in, in our family life, I think a lot of parents are wondering how this is gonna affect our kids longer term, how the changes that we've all adapted to and are adapting to are going to kind of change the picture for the rest of 2020 and, and beyond. And I know that you have written about this and about how this crisis will impact kids and families longer term um, with regard to uh, the social determinants of health. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks for asking. So, well, if anything, I, I know I, I know we don't know a lot, you know, and I, I think humility at this point in our, in our ability to prognosticate is really important. 
Um, but you know, I, I think that I, when I wrote that post now, probably what a month ago right. about things my concern. Yeah. yeah. Well, things have, I mean, things have changed and things haven't in the sense that, you know, we, we certainly, you know, I, one of the things I'd written in that post was that, you know, healthcare in general is pretty good at dealing with infectious diseases. Um, meaning that we understand the process of an infection coming in and typically what it does to a body. And then we work as hard as we can to figure out either A, how we prevent it through something like a vaccine or hand washing. And in the case of this pandemic, social distancing. And then, of course, we create and u- utilize therapies and supportive measures. And so, you know, medicine does a good job dealing with infectious disease. What what the institution of medicine doesn't do a very good job with are, you know, what we call the social determinants of health, meaning kind of everything else that makes up our lives besides just the temperature in our body, for example, or some of the structures. So social determinants mean, you know, from where you live, the kind of home you live in, the safety of your home. Are you in a home that's free from abuse or threat? Um, are you living in a life where you feel connected to other people? So um, are you living in a se- with a sense of financial security, a sense of emotional security? You know, and um, are, are you, you know, ultimately, are you safe? Um, but the social determinants, I think, are, are once we, you know, we're gradually, of course, as you know, figuring out more and more how to deal with the infectious disease process of COVID. And we're not necessarily figuring out in real time, at least from medical directing, um, of what we do about all those other problems. So, you know, reports even in the last 24 hours have been coming out about, you know, teen mental health in particular, and that can extend to the families that t- take care of them and adults, of course, and also children. And the last decade, or really since 20, or excuse me, 2007, 2008 time, and in the 10 years that unfolded since then, we saw a doubling of the rates of really um, severe depression and seeking care for suicidality in hospital systems. It, it's, out, it's outrageous and so a doubling, meaning that you know, in the last decade, we've seen such an increased crisis of teen mental health and depression, anxiety, and things that can lead to a child thinking about ending their life. Um, you know, we as a healthcare system aren't very well equipped even to deal with that. We haven't, you know, we, we typically don't have access to as many behavioral health specialists as we need. We don't do as good of a job as we want to do and need to do in screening children who are at risk for mental health challenges. For example, in the last two years, we've changed the recommendations at the American Academy of Pediatrics to recommend universal screening at age 12. And every year after that, formal universal screening for anxiety and depression at every well child check and visit. That's kind of, you know, should have always been done. And I think we did that more casually, but the Academy of Pediatrics went forward saying, you know, you need to formally recognize that. So I use that as an example to say, as we came into COVID, right, we were already in a little bit of a mental health crisis when it came to our teenagers. And we also know, of course, you know, children at very young ages and in the school age years can suffer from mental health challenges, particularly with life stresses, things like a move, a death of, of someone in the family, uh, a marriage, a divorce, you know, a life change, a loss of a friend, you know, et cetera. And so those are the kind of things that I also mean when I think about the social determinants. I kind of I group in mental health in some ways into that space, at least of how we activate and think on it. So, you know, I, again, I back to my very first comment, which is, I, you know, I think we have to be fairly humble of like, where are we going and what does it mean? I mean, how, but I certainly know this kind of disruption in life will have likely lifelong effect. Now, that can be good too, meaning that 
um, when, you know, one of the things I always like to think about in hardship in a very hopefully positive way is to think about, you know, something about children that they house really beautifully. I think we all, all parents know is that they're extremely resilient typically. Now right. there are margins to that, <laughs> but I think we all learn like, you know, my boys through this, my boys are 11 and 13 and, you know, my boys through that we've been home now, this is our eighth week at home. But their optimism, their energy, their kind of affection for life and for new ways of life and even being at home is so much more robust than my own. <laughs> like, it's just like, I'm kind of amazed by it all the time, you know, and I kind of, you know, and like every parent, you know, we take kind of awe at times in how our kids can show us and teach us different ways in the world. So, but at the same time too, I guess what I mean to say is that we, we can get into the kind of hardships of it, but I think we also have to think about how we get through hardships and what comes of that. And so I do think children um, whose families are losing their jobs are at risk for increased hunger, increased isolation, increased fear, um, you know, increased, you know, the risks that come with poverty at large um, will potentially in a, you know, in an ongoing, in an ongoing recession, right, cause significant challenges and risks for children, access to mental health, access to healthcare, access to education, access to food, right? Food insecurity is already a problem here in the United States, but now it's extremely different. Um, and out, outside of those, what can sound like extremes, I think there's just, you know, the kind of unease and anxiety and the ultimately social distance causing loneliness, right? A lack of a sense of belonging, a lack of connectedness that we ultimately want with each other and kind of that elemental feeling that we want in humanity, which is hopefulness and empathy and connection. And it's, you know, the, it's, you know, at times people will talk about social determinants and the consequences of, you know, diseases of loneliness. So, Alcohol, this isn't more in adult populations, but alcoholism, drug addiction, suicidality, or severe depression as diseases of loneliness. I expect that we will still see more hardship about with these diseases of loneliness as time unfolds, and that they could be as devastating as the effects of the virus. I mean, that's kind of what I wrote about a month ago. And again, I, you know, I think we're just beginning to start to see the uptick. Um, in mental health access. And thank goodness, there's a lot of access to telemedicine programs for therapy and for behavioral health specialties and interventions and working with your own pediatrician if you're worried about your own kids is a good place to start right now of you know, more and more access to providers who can help support kids who are suffering. Right. Yeah. Um, thank and, you. And sorry to be so long-winded, Malia, but the, the other thing I'd say is that kids in the resilience point is that you know, when you look at even anxiety, the gold standard for therapy and anxiety is something called exposure therapy, way where a child goes in with a parent to a behavioral health specialist and basically confronts big fears and gets to the other side of them and then looks back and says, oh, wait, I did that. Exposing a child rather than hiding from something they're scared of, exposing a child in exercise and in real life practice to things that they're scared of tends to actually cultivate resilience, but also tends to deeply downregulate feelings of anxiety and symptoms of, of anxiety at large. And so, in some ways, right now, one of the best things we can do is kind of open up dialogue about what we are scared of, facing those fears kind of head on, 
and then acknowledging when we do like, okay, we just did that. Like we, we just faced that challenge and can over time this cultivate, you know, a huge set of life skills for teenagers, for children and for families at large that gosh, we, we faced, we were in week eight of quarantine. Like we know how to reaffirm and realign and redo this in, in a way. And, and I think, if we can support an open communication and, and keep working on access, it's the long tail of the social determinant challenges could potentially really invigorate a sense of confidence and esteem. Thank you. Yes, I agree. So as the CMO for Before Brands, you lead messaging around health for caregivers and clinicians, and you field a lot of questions. I'm curious about what the biggest questions you're getting from parents these days. Yeah. Yeah, well, so Before Brands makes Spoonful One, which is a, you know, I'm the chief medical officer helping to really um, work on the prevention aspects of ever developing a food allergy in the first place. So, you know, that's the kind of narrow niche in some ways that I, I work in there. And that's because, you know, 20 years ago, we started to say to families, you know, don't eat certain foods early in life. And in fact, that was exactly the wrong advice. And in the 20 years of research that's unfolded since, we've learned heartily that early introduction of common potential allergens in infancy routinely, not just once, but, you know, right. eating peanuts and eating eggs and eating, you know, eating fish and eating shellfish and eating all those kinds of foods regularly as a baby and a toddler's immune system's developing helps, you know, basically stave off a sensitization event or potentially the development of a food allergy in the first place. So we want families ultimately to kind of liberate how they feed babies and feel really good about it, not be scared about it. So the thing I'm hearing about the most, right, when it comes to families, when I'm sharing stories on Instagram or I'm communicating with pediatricians or talking with parents directly, is that COVID has made all of us fearful of the health system in a way, which is, you know, as we know, we're working really hard to get families in specifically under the age of two with their kids to get in to get a regular immunizations and vaccines on time that we're worried we're going to have secondary outbreaks of stuff because people aren't going in to see their pediatrician for the regular visit they're missing right. you know we do as you know we do most of the shots in the first couple of years so same thing with food introduction we're starting to hear i think i, I did these little insta stories a couple of weeks ago and i got like five direct messages rapidly of moms saying wait i don't really want to introduce peanut to my six-month-old because if she has a reaction i don't want to have to go to the ER." And that doesn't make any sense. Now, it makes sense that mom feels that way, right? Like that a right. mom would say, gosh, I'm scared. But what doesn't make sense is the data doesn't back up that introducing food is an ultimately life-threatening event, if that makes sense. You know, we as a medical profession, I think, have made people scared of food when it came to food allergy, particularly because we didn't understand that you could prevent it by eating. <laughs> and now what we have to do is kind of rewind that. But I, you know, I, I've talked to now, I don't know, probably five allergists about this as pediatrists about this as well. And that is that in no way do we want you to not introduce foods for six months while we're in this quarantine or quasi quarantine time. Right. In fact, that's the critical period where if you take an infant at six months and you, you know, and you'd wait, for example, the data on peanuts really clear. If at 12 months of age, somebody hasn't introduced peanut, they have a sevenfold increased risk of developing a food allergy. At 18 months, it even increases. So it's like moms and dads, we don't want them to wait at all. And we also know, you know, first and foremost, you know, although food allergies have risen, it's 8% of the population. Um, you know, 92% of the population doesn't have a food allergy, but it's not just family history. So, you know, we know it could kind of happen to anyone. So we want all kids to be eating all these different and diverse foods. But when even an allergic child, if a child has already sensitized or had a sensitizing event and actually developed a food allergy and you feed them that food, 
the far, 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 far majority of those infants and toddlers on first or even second food introduction, if they have a reaction, it tends to be hives and it tends to be vomiting. It isn't the kind of life ending, throat closing, respiratory distress or depression that you see in older children once they've developed a food allergy. It tends to be, you know, within a few minutes of feeding, you start to see swelling around the mouth or you see hives on the body, or within an hour or so of feeding, you see a child vomit. So that alone should help families not be so scared about the introduction. I mean, no one should ever have the feeling that you have to go to the parking lot of your pediatrician's office to introduce peanut. I mean, it's just not true. It right. just doesn't reflect what's real. So that's the question I'm getting the most is, do I need to wait on doing this you know, until the quarantine's over? And absolutely not. And I need to actually write a blog post about that with the data. You know, there, There's new guidelines that have come out for children who already have a food allergy about even how to use epinephrine, even not to go to the emergency room or not to call 911 right away, which is somewhat different and somewhat surprising actually in this time. But from families, that's what I'm hearing about the very most is the kind of layers, again, of fear around eating, which actually go really against the data. But I think it's like, it's just like vaccines. It's like, it's really the, the act of non-intervention can feel safe. But when it comes to vaccines and when it even comes to introduction of food, the act of intervention is actually safer. And that there's no question about that when it comes to the data that with food introduction, the risk is in delay. The risk is not an introduction. Right. That's such a good point and just can be expanded out to so many aspects of health. I mean, we, we really can't put our health on hold or our kids' health on hold. Yeah, that's right. During that's this right. crisis, there are things that, that have to be done. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, even screening, right? You would think about any provision, right. like, you know, I'm in my mid-40s and I'm overdue for a mammogram. And, you know, I'm just like waiting for them to get scheduled. It's kind of convenient. It's like, oh yeah, I don't have to go do that. But I do need to go do that, <laughs> right? When, right, when, when right. those kind of screening modalities open back up. But I think back to the thing about social determinants or the secondary fallouts of the quarantine at large is that, gosh, are we going to see more preventable disease spikes in the next few years because we missed months and months of prevention services? And of course, most population health researchers suggest, yeah, we probably right. will. So, yeah. you know, I think we have to get the word out to have to, to kind of pick and choose what we're scared of and what we're not and kind of come through that. And I think the amazing thing about feeding our kids is that, you know, food introduction is generally a non-event for almost all children. Right. <laughs> and so if families can start feeling more comfortable with the new science and the new data, they'll feel good feeding their kids, for example, and or, you know, which is easier than, you know, getting a mammogram or a colonoscopy. Yes. <laughs> for cancer yes. screening. Definitely. So as we talked a little bit about teenagers and some of the challenges that teens are dealing with right now with the social determinants of health and, and mental health, I also have a 13-year-old. And since you are a former middle school teacher, I'm really interested in your take on this. My middle schooler is really missing her friends and just face-to-face -face mm -hmm. social interactions in general. I think a lot of teens out there feel the same. And as we move into a phase of easing up on the social distancing uh, recommendations, but schools are still closed, at least here they are for the duration of the school year. How can we talk to our teens in about um, beginning to see their friends again, resuming some social activities, but still staying safe? I mean, we know that fear appeals don't work with teens, their brains don't work the way that adults do, and we can't expect them to be many adults in terms of their risky behaviors, but of course we do want them to be safe. We don't want them to be um, wrapped in a bubble. We know that they need to see their friends in many ways. How 
can we think about this with um, with teenagers um, in particular? Yeah, so I'm hearing a lot from my own kids, like we're just kind of hitting the breaking point on that. It was kind of all, I was telling you like, you know, they are really resilient, but they are like, okay, so can we see people again? <laughs> so number one, I think, we are going to have to figure out how to do it. So that's a really good place to start. Is it? We are going to get to see some of our friends, you know, b before next academic year. I mean, schools are out most all over the country, and including here, of course, through the calendar year. But I think as it's warmed up, we have to just think of like, well, where is the safest place to see someone? Well, outside. It's always going right. to be the safest place to see someone. You know, the reason that we have as you know, you know, infections more predominantly like colds in the winter time is that we recirculate air, we're in close quarters, we're inside. The outdoor space just allows for less risk at baseline. So from the beginning, seeing friends outside for the rest of the, you know, the spring and summer is always going to be the smartest and safest place to do it. Um, you know, again, it, it, it's again thinking about how do you use your body <laughs> when you're interacting with people and how can you stay safe? Because kids have to be reminded that they may have COVID and not know it, right? We know that as a population, those that are likely, most likely to be asymptomatic, show no symptoms or have no idea they have COVID-19 are children and or very young invincible adults, right? And so that's a reminder to them, like they may feel like they're not posing any risk to their friends when in reality, if they had contact with someone who was ill, right? They could be actually kind of a silent carrier. So as a reminder for that, it's then how to use your body when you're with people. So keeping a distance. So, you know, going on a bike ride is probably better if you're not biking one and if you're biking next to each other. I mean, there's just kind of funny dynamics. I don't know if you've seen any of these drawings where like if you're going for a run or you're going for a bike with someone, it's better to just be right in line with them. And of course, for you to follow behind someone on a bike who's right in front of you, because if they're breathing, right, their breath goes out of their mouth and then you, you know, you kind of fly right through that cloud of their breath. If you're right next right. to them when you're biking, right, you're going to be kind of in parallel behind you. So going for bike rides, great. Going for a walk, actually, I think can work pretty well. But, you know, here in my neighborhood, at least I see lots of teenagers then getting really close and sharing their phones and looking at their phones and grabbing their phones and pointing at things together. And so right, that's right. where, you, you're, you know, it's so normal that they that people want to do that. But if you're going to go for a walk and you're walking your dogs or whatever, you just do your best to kind of keep your distance and enjoy each other from that. If you're going to do a gathering where you've got, you know, three or four friends over the summer and you're going to be outside, I mean, really working to say, okay, if we're going to be in the backyard, you know, a couple people can sit on the bench, a couple people can sit at the table, we can still be together, we can play music, we can do whatever we want. But um, again, not kind of sitting right on top of each other, that kind of intimacy, I think that we all crave yeah. is still going to put us at risk. I mean, it just is. And so as best they can, you know, moderating the introduction, knowing that there is going to be a time when we get to see and touch human beings again. <laughs> there just is. And that's going to come with a better sense of understanding of testing, right? And so that's another promise in some ways that we can't make, but we can say we're working on it. Again, we don't have perfection here, but that, you know, as schools are opened and as colleges are opened and, you know, like, I don't know if you've heard the reports this week from the University of Arizona, they're planning on opening their campus, their president and CEO, I think, of the university is a cardiothoracic surgeon, and he's instituting absolutely mandatory testing of everybody when they get to campus and then working on how they retest and how they help people understand if they're at risk or not. So, for example, a 13-year-old, my hope would be that, you know, 
come late in the summer or in the fall, testing will be more widely available. They could get tested. If they have proof of immunity from a reliable lab, they may feel really more comfortable to be around another team for a time period, at least as we understand immunity to be lasting, at least in the number of months, where they could be around someone with closer contact. So, you know, that's coming as I think we start to understand um, the you know antibody testing reliability, the sensitivity and specificity of those tests, and then how we apply them. But in the near term, I think it's just as best we can, which is hard for teenagers. You know, kind of this like graded process where we're saying, okay, you're not going to be all the way sitting on each other's lap and enjoying each other, looking at each other's phone. You're going to start with these kind of distance walk and distance kind of get-togethers, and then as time goes forward and we have more knowledge around our immunity, we'll get to change our behaviors. Right. Thank you. Yes. When my kids and their friends get together, personal space does not exist. Um, and so it's <laughs> know, it is know, a challenge. Uh, um, so you have written about the role that probiotics play in supporting immune health. I know we're all um, trying to be our healthiest and keep our kids healthy and and kind of go beyond the just um, washing, washing, washing our hands all the time. Um, can you talk about probiotics and some of the other things that parents can do? So probiotics are complicated in the sense of, you know, just defining what they are, I think is important and understanding how they're manufactured and sold is really important for families. So, you know, probiotics are live bacteria and they're thought to be kind of pro in that you put them into your body, you know, typically in the gastrointestinal tract to kind of repopulate the gastrointestinal tract with more diverse bacteria. Now, when you're eating them, you're typically only eating one kind of bacteria, but it's often a kind of bacteria that's thought of as a good bacteria and kind of keep more diversity in your GI tract. But the problem with them in general is that they're, you know, they're a supplement. They're not regulated by the FDA. You don't always know exactly what you're buying, meaning are you buying live bacteria? Are they actually effective, et cetera? But that being said, there is pretty decent data on specific strains of probiotics when for example, called lactobacillus or B. infantis or um, acidophilus. And, and there is some data that when children, for example, are given antibiotics for ear infections, if you give a probiotic during that time, you might decrease the number of days that they would have loose stools or diarrhea that can come from just killing all the good bacteria that in your gut. But at large, you know, a healthy immune system doesn't you know, it, it's, it's kind of hard language or boosting an immune system. It's hard language in a way in that, um, you know, we don't have a ton of data that would ever have me give the recommendation that during the time of this quarantine, for example, you go out and eat probiotics every day. That being said, COVID does have gastrointestinal symptoms, and it may be that over time we'll find that, you know, people with more diverse bacteria in their GI tract maybe have less uh, you know, they have a better ability to fight off an exposure to the virus through, through the GI tract or something. But we don't, we don't really know that yet. So I think about it in kind of all the different things we do to not alter the bacteria in our body or not limit them. So, you know, continuing to not use antibiotics when you don't need them is always a tenant to keeping your, your family healthy. You know, not overusing things like antibacterial soap that are kind of falsely claimed and don't necessarily actually improve health or health outcome. And then, you know, eating live cultures of things. So yogurts with live culture. And if you want to buy probiotics um, with, you know, live bacteria in them and you want to eat them as a daily supplement, there's probably no harm. We just don't have a ton of goods that you're going to fend off infection that much more with kind of a daily regimen at this time. So I, I think, 
you know, I think we're learning more and more that disease susceptibility on the planet has increased in some, in some fields. So for example, in the allergic space, like we were talking about the development of even food allergy is thought in some ways to be mediated by your GI tract immune system, but also because of, you know, getting food presentation in the tummy is really important, but also even by the cofactors and mediators of the microbacter or the, you know, bacteria that are there. It's like, parents have heard of the hygiene hypothesis. You don't want to raise your kid in a bubble. You know, we know kids that are raised on a farm versus kids that are raised in the city, for example. The kids raised on a farm are much less likely to have allergic disease, asthma, allergies, or eczema later in life. That being, you know, in the dirt, in the mud, in the bacteria, and the parasites, and the fungus, all that exposure that we get when we're out in the world, in some ways, particularly when your immune system is developing, likely helps it kind of downregulate being oversensitive to it or allergic to it in a way. But from a standpoint of probiotics, I'm not sure um, that there's enough data to say right now, for example, you have to make a different change because of COVID-19. That might change, but right now I have not seen data that's compelling. Right. Thank you. So this podcast is primarily about sleep, and I wanted to ask you about ways parents can support healthy sleep with all of this schedule disruption that we're experiencing. I know people with infants and toddlers are experiencing just nap chaos and, and schedules all over the place. People with teenagers and kids at the older end of the spectrum are experiencing different things with regard to sleep, but it seems like everyone is experiencing a lot of changes. Um, so mm -hmm. how can we support um, healthy sleep during this yeah. disruption? Yeah, well, I think like, like you know, I mean, when it comes to sleep, and I, I think I've said in a number of my blog posts, like, you know, consistency is the secret sauce to parenthood. And what's happened right now is that our consistency, our routines, our habits, the habitual nature with which we go about the world when we're off to work and off to school and um, has dramatically changed. And that's likely the most, I mean, the strongest predictor or the strongest lever of why sleep has become a bigger challenge for most people. Now, anxiety and disruption and fear and lack of knowing and depression, those all affect our sleep patterns too, which I think a lot of us are experiencing from day to day, different levels of distress and anxiety. But if anything you can do from today forward when it comes to your family's sleep and your own personal sleep is try to think really carefully of keeping your family on a routine. You know, when our school went to remote learning back in March, they were saying, you know, right from the beginning, they're like, get up at your regular time, set your alarm, like open up your inbox and your email. And even if the, you know, Zoom class doesn't start till 10, you know, get out of bed at seven and be ready for learning at eight in the morning. And, and there's probably a ton of goodness in that of just keeping life feeling scheduled and normal, but also then making sure that kind of bedtime doesn't shift too much. You know, we've been, our family's been watching a lot of different family um, television shows at night, and we've been going through these whole series of shows like The Good Place and some of these others. And, and they've been great, but like our kids will, will get to like 930 and the boys will be like, okay, let's watch another one. And part of us is like, oh, yeah, we should just watch another one. And it's like, well, wait, no, you should probably really be in bed and asleep before 10 if you're really going to keep that regular schedule. And teenagers need somewhere between nine and 10 hours of sleep still believe it or not at night and if we right. do keep them up late and we're trying to keep the regular schedule right we'll mess it all up right so again however it can feel non-necessary to get to bed early even if tomorrow doesn't hold a lot of scheduled meetings or zoom calls or whatever it probably makes sense now in the younger time you know in infants and toddlers and things they're changing they're they're of course so strongly connected to our own rhythms our own stresses our own anxieties and changes in those habits too and i think 
you know, when we're stressed and when we're overwhelmed and when the schedule is different, we may be lax about how we do things. So if you were, you know, not going right to your baby when they were crying um, normally or letting them kind of fuss and get themselves back and self-soothing in the middle of the night or even during the day or with a little intermittent awakening during nap time, and now you're hearing them and you're agitated or something and you go to them sooner, we're just as at fault for that too, right? It's okay. It can be harder in these kind of close quarters and everything else to kind of do the hard work of, you know, cry it out if you've chosen to do that or the regimen of um, not going to them, you know, if they're developing some separation anxiety and awakening a little more and calling out for you and letting them learn to self-soothe. But going back to those tenets of, you know, kids really do better when they get themselves to sleep on their own, when they're doing that, of course, without a screen in any room. I mean, screens should be off without question for all of us, an hour before we want to go to sleep. Not just because of the blue light, but because of the activity and the way that mentation changes that we get, the activation that we get when we're interacting with a phone or even a television or screen of any kind. You know, it, we know that over a third of children in the United States have a television in their bedroom, let alone, you know, the, the, the reality of the number of tablets we have in our lives now and how easy that, you know, they're every once in a while with this Zoom learning and my kids, they have these school laptops. I will honestly find them asleep at night and I'll find the laptop in their bed. I'm like, oh my God, like that's right. not good, you know, and I'm not policing it well enough, right? Like I'm just as guilty here in that, like, I'm not saying, okay, you have to plug your computer in near the kitchen, right? That's not in the bedroom, right? That we keep these charging stations outside of bedrooms for a reason, but they're not doing their Zoom classes on their desks in their room during the day. And so I've just gotten really dumb about it where I haven't then said at the end of the night, get that laptop, get that iPad, get those out of those bedrooms and, and take those away. So, but, I mean, the bottom line for any sleep challenge you're having right now is try to reevaluate how you can instill some consistency and ritual and routine back to your life. And I sincerely believe you will find your way back towards better sleep. And maybe this is a great time if you haven't had that in your life with your kids or you haven't been strict about those kinds of routines like bedtimes, et cetera, um, you, you could start doing them. And, and that we know, for example, that a routine bedtime is dramatically improves a child's attention, mood, like affability the next day, and ultimately their, be, their performance in school. And there's, I've written a couple of blogs about that. There, there are studies about that. Um, but that being said, you know, one of the luxuries right now when it comes to teenagers, for example, you know, is, as you know, Malia, in the state of Washington, there's been a lot of work on kind of early start times of school and trying to move them back. That teenagers naturally, you know, their cycle and their kind of shift in sleep, they don't naturally, like their melatonin spike that helps them fall asleep at night, doesn't really hit until, you know, once puberty hits in around 12, it, it really is about nine or 10 or even after when a teen naturally is ready to kind of fall off and go to sleep. Right. If they need... Yes eight, nine, nine and a half hours of sleep a night, and you're expecting them to get up at six in the morning, they're never going to get it. So in some ways, this is a great time for teens to get the sleep that they normally don't get and improve this, what we call the sleep deficit that they've had. But again, you know, what we're seeing is that teenagers are staying up super late, trying to connect with peers and connecting online, et cetera, and then sleeping in really late and missing some of that early stuff. So it's trying to drive them saying, you know, maybe, a, maybe if you've got a 10th grader and 11th grader, a really reasonable bedtime or you know, off screen time is 11 so that they're asleep by midnight so that, and then they're out of bed no later than nine and, and not, not letting them sleep till 10 or 11 in the morning because they can um, by keeping them in that natural rhythm so that you can even keep that bedtime that you'll find, you know, there's no question that we are happier, nicer, and kind of more the people we wanna be when we've slept. There's just no question. That includes your infant, toddler, school age, teenager, and yourself. <laughs> there's just no question. 
Yes, absolutely. I agree. And I'm hearing that from a lot of parents of older teens that mm-hmm. what their teenager's a new person now because they are at, they don't have to get up at 530. You know, we yeah. Seattle has changed their school start times and they've had success mm-hmm. and there's been documented um, improvements in test scores and things like that. But that's only in Seattle. Here yeah. in Tacoma, yeah. we still do have the very early school start times and there's mm-hmm. been some very small movements toward thinking about moving that. And as I am eyeing having a high schooler here in a couple of years, I'm thinking about that too. It's still very much the same as it was when I was in high school, which is, you know, high schoolers having to get up at five or 5.30 to make their bus and, and, and get into their classrooms on time. So still very, very much the same in all parts of Washington, except for Seattle. Um, and we haven't, haven't moved the needle as much on that as maybe maybe we should. So a lot of things um, to prioritize as school gets going this fall, I think. Yeah, I mean, I just, you know, we're always looking for these quote silver linings, right? I mean, I think that is one, right? That teenagers have the opportunity now to sleep in a way they don't normally get to sleep. And that's right. awesome, right? <laughs> like, and they're awesome. new people. They're, they're new, a whole new teenager. And they're new people. The less, the grouchy. I know, I know. We've noticed, we've noticed one of ours. Yeah, it's much, I mean, it's just getting a lot better sleep. And we're still trying to keep to this schedule, but there's no question there's more sleep happening. Yeah, yeah, it's, it is. It's that, that is a silver lining, I think. And that was, that was actually my next question for you is just talking about some unexpected positives in this whole situation. I know you've already mentioned a couple. Oh, yeah. Thanks for asking. I mean, I think um, I found March, I was just writing a, a friend in Seattle about this this morning that I found March really hard. Like we last yeah. minute canceled <laughs> a, a trip to Mexico and you know, we, we locked ourselves in kind of really early. And, um, you know, I, as a, you know, I, I'm a chief medical officer of a company in California. And as, as you know, I do lots of media and speaking and travel. I'm, I'm very used to getting on an airplane. And this is not an exaggeration, like every week. And now I've been home for the first time in like 10 years um, for over two months. And I've, I mean, this is real. I don't think since my kids were really little, I've been home consecutively for two months without a conference to go to or a speaking event to go to or a friend to visit or um and there is a a a kind of a newfound intimacy in that um of just presence uh it's not perfect it you know like we we have hard days and we have really nice days and you know we do so many walks because it's the only thing to do (laughs) like we've been doing all these walks and um that and the generation of presence that comes from that with my kids. Um, I've done a lot more walks. I, I'm a runner. And so I, I, I typically run and don't walk. And now I'm walking a lot more in addition. And I'm finding just a ton of mindfulness in that, that everybody talks about. <laughs> um, but I'm starting to just find that pace a little bit more. And I, you know, like everyone else, I think, you know, I'm, in the, I'm, I'm kind of midlife classic, you know, midlife, 45 year old woman, like looking at the rest of my life and thinking, you know, what, what is elementally important and how can I live both authentically and courageously and and simultaneously a little bit in a a more gentle way. And I think we all are feeling that, that, you know, we moved away from Seattle in some ways because I had just created for myself and my children, I felt a total rat race life. And in part why we selected to come to the, to the Midwest and be at the university here and do different work was, 
um, to be in a different kind of, like to force my, it was for me personally to force my hand at, at redesigning how I was living and working and, and for, for our children. And I think we're all afforded, right, wild amounts of kind of um, free time to think on what's next and when we do kind of repopulate our lives, how do we do it? And I, I was just telling my team at the company, I said, you know, I don't think I'll ever travel again like I did. I just don't want to. I don't want to travel this little, <laughs> but I don't right. want to ever commit in the way that I did before. And I don't think I'll have to. I think more and more educational conferences and medical CME and are going to be virtual and I can be the, you know, person that I have been on TV when I was a, you know, a television contributor and everything else that way. And, and the other last thing I'll say, the silver lining that I do not think, I need to write about this too, is, is that I've written about daydreaming before. Um, that the, there is such value we know in the creative process on daydreaming and with screens and our devices and our lives the way that they've been, you know, we have lost the space and time to daydream because you can just always pull out your smartphone. It doesn't matter if you're on a subway or on an airplane or in the line of the grocery or whatever it is, right? You can just fill your mind with other people's ideas. And, you know, those walks, for example, I'm forcing myself at times to go without my phone out into the world on these walks because it, it does just allow for a totally different time and space. And I do think I'm daydreaming again. And um, I'm so thankful for it. And so I don't know what it'll generate in myself or in health or in new direction or refinement of things, but I always want daydreaming time for children. I think it is extremely valuable to the mind you know getting a child to a place of boredom you know if it's not dominant if they're not always bored because there's a lack of stimulation or some sort of neglect boredom is beautiful it, it, it incurs is, yes. you know the bounty of what your mind can do right and so I think this this is a great time to think again about how we, you know, kind of create these pockets of stillness. Maria Poropova says that word, these pockets of stillness, and and then how do we how do we bring back, you know, kind of more downtime, more daydreaming time um, in this very you know, tech-filled life. So that's for me yes. the biggest one. Yeah, absolutely. I March was really really difficult here too, and I think part of it was because. I was resisting so much what was happening. I did not want mm -hmm. what was yeah. happening to be happening and everything was happening so quickly. And there was so yeah. much information and overwhelm. And I think over April, I kind of got to a place of acceptance and just, you know, this, this is where we are. This is what's happening and this is our reality for now. And I think just making that shift within myself from I'm resisting, resisting, no, I don't want this to, yes, this is where we are. And there's absolutely nothing I can do to change the fact that schools are closed, that all my kids' activities are gone, that everything is moving to a screen. You know, there's nothing that I can do um, about those things. I think that just um, was a shift within me and then a shift for my family as well to, it's hard to tie a bow on something and say, okay, look at everything great that's coming out of this because so many people are suffering and there are going to be lasting impacts. So I still struggle a little bit with what, but look at this garden that I planted, you know, yeah, it just for seems the, kind of insignificant in and, yeah. yeah, in the light of, of the suffering that, that people are going through, but um, it is, a, just such a rare opportunity to really have the chance to reevaluate your schedule and your priorities. And I don't think that my kids were overscheduled before, but I definitely have had moments of like, 
last night we were out on the patio and my son was just digging in the dirt for earthworms and my daughter was, you know, learning to use her new pogo stick and we were just enjoying the evening. And I was thinking if this was, you know, our nor we would be at swim lessons right now. Of course. Exactly. Literally right now we would be at swim lessons and I yeah. love swim. My kids miss it, but right now we don't have to do that. We don't have to be there. We don't have to, mm -hmm. to be on the road. So yes, it, it has been such a rare opportunity to kind of pause and, and reevaluate a little bit for yeah. sure. And I wanted to just ask you as we're kind of wrapping up, what's the one thing kind of, if someone is overwhelmed or they're just kind of, they, they want to keep their kids health on track, but they're overwhelmed, what's one thing that you would recommend that they do? Wow. Um, one, I mean, I, I, your podcast focuses on sleep. Like I, I cannot, I don't think we could ever overstate the value of a good night's sleep, um, our kind of overwhelming um, opportunity in prevention and wellness and uh, presence, uh, you know, and connection that, um, as we all know, the way a day starts and can unfold, the way that we can perform, the way that we can listen, and the way that we show up after a good night's sleep is dramatically different. And so as to get to any other, you know, activity or behavior that will improve your life or your health, if you start with a good night's sleep, you're so much likely, you're so much more likely to succeed. So I think if you're going to do anything, and you're going to start today on something different. It's thinking about how can you start to gradually in the next couple of weeks create really good consistency with sleep habits and rituals, and you know, good sleep hygiene, and and truly can, can I connect to it? Um, I think it will give you so much. Right. Thank you. I agree. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This has been really helpful. Where can people find you and learn more about you? I know you have a, a lot of outreach. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, my kind of home online now is just my name. So it's wendysueswanson.com. That's my webpage where you can drop me an email and find my other social channels. I'm also on Instagram as Dr. Wendy Sue Swanson and I'm on Twitter as Wendy Sue Swanson. So I switched all my Seattle Mama Doc stuff when I moved out of Seattle. So you can just find me with my name, but I'd love to connect and hear any uh, responses or feedback. So thanks so much for having me. Thank you. All right. It's the Sleep Well, Stay Well podcast. Now you know. Thanks for checking out the show.